Welcome to Because I Want to Know, the podcast where I interview guests about their crazy, unique occupations or life experiences. I'm your host, Leslie Fear. So let's get into it, shall we? Hey, everyone. Today I'm joined with Dr. Rebecca Simon, and she's an historian of piracy. She's based in the LA area. She's got her PhD from the King's College in London. She is also just published a book called Why We Love Pirates and The Hunt for Captain Kidd. Another book will be coming out probably sometime in 2022 called The Pirate Queens, The Lives of Anne Bonny and Mary Reed. And I tell you, I'm so happy to have you here today, Dr. Rebecca Simon. Thank you so much. Oh, gosh, you're welcome. Thank you so much for having me on. I tell you, I find a lot of my people that I interview on TikTok, my audience and my listeners know that from the get-go, and I'm rubbing my hands together just getting all this content from you because I am a history buff, and this is so up my alley as far as the time periods, the 1600s, the 1700s, uh, The I guess it's the golden age, is that the right word for yeah. the piracy? Okay. Can you kind of tell me what that is, the, the golden age of piracy, and kind of what started the whole thing? Yeah, absolutely. So oftentimes when people think of pirates, they're probably thinking of golden age pirates. And this is the period where pirates really flourished in the Caribbean and off the coast of North America in the 17th and 18th centuries. So most historians believe that there have been three rounds of the golden age of piracy, one starting in about 1670. And the context for all of this is there is a lot of political competition between Britain and their other European competitors for control of major plantation islands in the Caribbean, particularly competition with Spain. And one of the big things they're always competing over is Jamaica, which is known to have really great land for great sugar cultivation, which is probably one of the number one products that they're shipping back to Europe at this time. Now, with all this competition, a war breaks out between Britain and Spain called the Anglo-Spanish War. And whenever you have a war competition like this going on, you have a lot of political instability. And with political instability, you are getting an influx of people like pirates coming in because they can go pretty much unnoticed. During this time also, the British had passed something called the Navigation Acts in 1651. And these were a set of acts that banned all of their British American colonists from trading with any other country outside of Britain or one of its own colonies. And the purpose was to economically cripple their other European competitors. Well, colonists don't like this because now they can't get goods they used to love. You know, Portugal has great wine. France has also has great wine and other items. Spain has great textiles and, you know, they're banned from certain spices. It's a big deal. Pirates fill this gap. So in the 1670s, we see an influx of pirates, and this is called the buccaneering period. And it's basically, it's pirates, mostly French pirates, that are kind of swooping in and sort of terrorizing islands in the Caribbean and then down the coast of Central and South America. And the reason why they're called buccaneers actually has to do with their food preparation. It comes from a French word. I forget exactly what the word is, but um, something that sounds similar to buccaneer with the way that they would roast meat on their ship. And this was a very unusual practice because roasting meat could be quite risky. So this is very unique to the French. So that's why they're called, this is called the buccaneering period. Okay. Then we have the second round, and this is piracy in the 1690s, specifically British piracy in the Indian Ocean during the 1690s. 
Britain is trying to really establish good trading stops with India because they want to get really good proximity going into Asia. You know, tea, spices, silks, you know, these are always the top things people want. Britain has set up the East India Company, sort of a financial backing system with loads of financial backers going in to facilitate this trade. Well, we're getting British pirates who are taking advantage of the situation. And two really famous ones are Henry Avery, who robs several ships and supposedly captures a major Indian Mughal's daughter or a princess. Uh-huh. Indian Mughals are the top Indian merchants, very high status. Okay. And what's interesting is that Henry Avery was unable to be captured. He disappears in history. Mm-hmm. We don't really know what happened to him. One of the rumors is that he wound up destitute back in his hometown of Bristol, England, or in and around that area. His crew were captured throughout the American colonies. They'd made it back to the Americas, and most of them were captured, put on trial, and then executed. But the fact that Britain could not capture its ringleader, or their ringleader, really upset the Mughals, and they threatened to cut off trade if this happened again. Well, that's 1695. In 1698, we have a new privateer coming in. His name is Captain William Kidd. A privateer... (laughs) (laughs) Don't worry, I got you. Um, A privateer is basically a legally sanctioned pirate. Mm -hmm. They have something called a letter of mark, which is like a contract saying, we want you to attack these specific ships, and in payment, you keep 80% of any loot you can capture. So it's really lucrative, and it's pretty adventurous as well. Mm -hmm. So Captain Kidd, under pressure from his crew, robs the wrong ship. And this turns into a whole big production. He robs the wrong Mughal ship. And this really, again, upsets India. And they're threatening Britain. You let this happen again. You have to capture him or else we'll pretty much consider an act of war and cut off all trade. So Britain starts this massive manhunt against Captain Kidd until they finally capture him. He's thrown into prison in Boston in 1699, where he stays for two years. He's carted back to London goes on a really kind of a wild trial, full of drama, and then he's publicly executed on May 23rd, 1701. Then piracy goes on pause, and this is because you have the breakout of the War of Spanish Succession. Mm -hmm. And this is a way to prevent a new king from rising in Spain. You see, the Spanish king died without an heir, um, and Spain was one of the most powerful countries in France, a very Catholic country. Protestantism has really kind of taken over a lot of Europe, and so a lot of this very much religious conflict. The next closest relative comes from a French Bourbon family, the um, major Catholic powerful family. And much of Europe does not want France to then to become the most powerful country. So it turns into a war against this. And a lot of former pirates are offered a pardon, basically saying, we'll forgive all of your crimes if you join us and fight as privateers for the war, because they need skilled fighters and skilled sailors. A lot of this is fought on the sea. And this will last until 1713 with the Treaty of Utrecht, which really changes the political game of the control of the Atlantic and the colonies. It basically gives Britain control of all of the Caribbean and most of Atlantic trade. Well, these privateers are now out of work overnight. And many of them decide to team up or continue back into piracy. And this is the period, this is the third round of the golden age of piracy. And this is the period where we're getting the really famous ones. Benjamin Hornigold, Blackbeard, Charles Vane, Jack Rackham, um, Anne Bonny, Mary Reed, Edward Lowe, all these really infamous pirates. And they congregate in the Bahamas in a city called Nassau, 
which has become known as a pirate kingdom because that's where they were all settling. And this period will last about 15 years up until the late 1720s. And that the reason for this is because the Navy has become very powerful. A lot of pirates have started taking pardons because this was a way to try to get rid of pirates was, you know, take a pardon, you know, betray your men. And we'll give you a pardon. Right, and that's um, basically well, that's basically what Blackbeard did to his men, didn't he? I mean, they they offered him a pardon, and then he went ahead and just got all of his men drunk and kept the really good ones that he wanted to keep, and then let the ship run aground. And then all of a sudden, he's gotten away with everything, and his men that he really didn't want end up getting caught, and he goes off. Now, is that when he's going off with Stephen Bonney? Yeah, so that's when he had teamed up with a pirate named Stephen Bonnet, and. Bonnet is a funny character because he was really, he was, he just wasn't a good pirate. I almost feel, I always feel kind of bad for the guy. So he was a really wealthy plantation owner who just kind of woke up one day with a midlife crisis and decided he no longer wanted to be a plantation owner, (laughs) husband or father buys. Yeah. He buys a ship, hires a crew, goes and attacks ships. He gets really heavily injured. And so he teams up with Blackbeard because Blackbeard's all about getting his money. But the thing is, no one respects Steve Bonnet because what legit pirate is just going to buy himself a ship and hire a crew. So one of the reasons why Blackbeard does this is because he no longer wants to be partnered up with Steve Bonnet. So part of it is also to portray Bonnet and just get him out of Blackbeard's hair. So yeah, Yeah. Blackbeard takes 40 of his favorite crew members and they sneak off. Blackbeard takes a pardon and they go live in North Carolina for a little while, maybe a little less than a year. And then Blackbeard goes back out to sea as a pirate yet again. A lot of pirates actually did that. They would take a pardon, lie low for a while and then go back out. Because really, that was their way of living. By then, they had already adjusted to that way of life. And I think they were like, at first, you know, hey, you told us to go do this. And and it kept all the ships from, you know, entering other places. Then they were able to conquer those ships. But now uh, they said, don't do that anymore. And like, no, I don't think so. I think we're going to keep doing this because we like it. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) That's exactly what it was. They're like, we're going to keep doing this because we have our own freedom and autonomy. We're not answerable to anybody but ourselves. And we can get rich quick. Right. Yeah. Because I was listening to one of the podcasts you're on and the guy was like, well, why wouldn't you just, you know, do the stealing on land and not over water? Wouldn't it be easier? And you had a great explanation for that. So tell me what you told him. So, yeah, pirates were very much maritime based. And this is because they had a lot more freedom on the sea than they would on land. Their ships were pretty much their own autonomous community. They referred to themselves as their own nation and that they were of no nation. And so this really gives them a lot of their own control and identity. Pirate ships have small ships for the most part. Some are quite major, but a lot of them sail in smaller ships. They're able to sail in and out of these tiny areas with really risky coastlines that major merchant or naval ships just can't follow them into. And yeah, and on land, you know, they're going to be a lot more vulnerable to various authorities because it'll be much easier to track them down just because of logistics. You know, you're on land, People know the terrain much easier. The ocean is a vast wilderness, more so than people really realize, I think. It's very difficult to track people down. You have to hope that they're going to land on a coast somewhere, and you have to be able to try to predict which one. So, yeah, pirates pirates did have dealings on land, but all their crimes were based on the sea. And part of the reason why they were so notorious on the sea is because there was a legal entity that was specifically charged with getting rid of pirates, and this is called the Admiralty Court. And they're in charge of anything— that takes place on any body of water. And uh, the definition of a pirate was someone who robbed and murdered on any body of water. But the second pirates end up on land, the admiralty jurisdiction ends, and then they have to contact the other land-based authorities. And it kind of becomes a whole political situation. Oh, gotcha. Now, I got to admit, 
one of the reasons I was so drawn to your content, you go to the dark side and I like the dark side. (laughs) And I like hearing about Charles Bain and Edward Lowe. And I want you to tell my listeners a little bit about some of the things that happened with them. Okay. So the pirates, Charles Bain and Ed Lowe uh, were considered to be some of the most violent pirates in this period of history. I would even argue that particularly Ed Lowe was probably the most violent in history. At least he's the one who terrifies me the most. Like I'm used to this brutality that I research. It doesn't phase me until they show up and I'm like, Oh God, here we go. (laughs) So (laughs) they were both known for their violence and cruelty. So initially it's Charles Vane who becomes really famous for this. And he would attack ships without mercy and He would happily kill victims. Uh, A lot of pirates actually did not kill victims very much because, you know, they're going to lose their own crew. And, you know, many of them just wanted to go and steal goods and then get out as fast as possible. Charles Vane was happy to fight. He's happy to kill. And he would often tie up hostages and have them beaten over and over. And, you know, they'd get attacked. They get cut up and they get really maimed. Edward Lowe did know Charles Vane and kind of got some ideas of this brutality, but he took it way further. So Edward Lowe is quite interesting. He was born in England, but he was raised in Boston and from a very young age was known to be quite troublesome. He would rob people. He would beat up people from a young age. Then he gets married and his wife dies in childbirth in 1719, unfortunately. Mm. And after this is when he turns to piracy. Mm. And he is no less than... You know, I'm not a psychiatrist. I can't diagnose. But he is no less than a psychopath or at least a sadist. He sounds almost Um, like a serial killer the way he did things. I mean, it sounds like a Jeffy Dahmer kind of thing, you know? Oh, yeah. So he was very brutal. Um, He would capture ships. And then what he would do is he would take these hostages And he would tie them up, have them beaten, and then he would do things like, especially to the captains they captured, they would cut off part of their body parts, their lips, their noses, or their ears, or some combination of those, fry them up or some, um, and force the victim to eat them, sometimes force them to eat them raw, you know, yeah, before, before killing them or sometimes letting them go, but heavily disfigured if they survived these injuries, you know, infection very well could set in very, very quickly or blood loss, you know, um, you bleed a lot from your face. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. So he was one of the people, if people knew that Ed Lowe had been spotted nearby, it really caused a lot of terror into people. You know, people wanted to capture him, but they were also afraid to do so. Now we don't know the circumstances of Edward Lowe's death. It's kind of one of those mysteries. The two biggest theories is that he got caught in a storm and his ship likely sank with him on it. The other theory is that the French were quite after him and the French somehow managed to capture him and then executed him in Martinique. But we don't know which story is true. Mm, Okay. Yeah. It's a lot of times some of those histories way back then and even, you know, now fires take over and you lose the history or you lose some of the documents. So that happens so often. I don't know if that's really what happened with this thing. But, you know, things like that happen and you lose the history part of it. Now, with Blackbeard, we got to go back to him because I I know how he died. I also know he ran along the uh, East Coast of the United States. A lot of those areas, Florida, Georgia, North Carolina, South Carolina those kinds of areas. Is that where, when he stopped, did he sink the ship right there in the North Carolina area? Was that where he was? Yeah. So he kind of created a little bit of a home base off with the Carolinas. And when he 
basically had his crew captured one of the things he did is that he sunk the ship as well this was a good chance for him to get rid of his ship the queen anne's revenge because he became very recognizable in it and he was kind of like we need to lay low so blackbeard was from bristol and grew up in a maritime community he was educated he was a very smart guy um worked on merchant ships from a young age and he became a privateer in the War of Spanish Succession. And he sailed under Benjamin Hornigold, who was one of the top privateers. He was kind of Hornigold's protege. Benjamin Hornigold is actually the man who really established Nassau as the pirate kingdom oh, nice. during that time period. Yeah. And Blackbeard eventually gets his own ship. He captures a French ship called uh, La Concorde and renames it Queen Anne's Revenge. And what Blackbeard was really known for, and this is about 1717, what Bla- 1718-ish, um, what Blackbeard's really known for is his physical appearance. He's grown out his hair very long. Um, he's got very black hair, literally. He grows out a very long beard, which covers most of his face, very long hair. And it might just seem like a quirk, but this actually has a lot more significance than we might think. Yes. Because <laughs> during this time, this is known as a period called polite society. And one of the big things that men wanted to do, no matter what their class, was to look respectable, look mm-hmm. like a gentleman. One of the ways you do this is you are clean shaven with either short hair or hair tied back. And so Blackbeard does the exact opposite. He was all about the theater because the big idea is you strike terror into the ships you attack and they'll surrender fast and give you the goods. This was Blackbeard's tactic. He would put candles in his hair to make it look like he had risen up from hell, but he never killed anybody. And in fact, he would implore his men to avoid killing people as much as possible. They just wanted to get in and out as fast as possible. But Then he becomes notorious for some other actions. The biggest one is he blockades the port of Charleston. He doesn't allow any ships in and out. And it is said that he was actually looking for medicine because he and several members of his crew were suffering the um, more advanced effects of syphilis. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And this is horrific when it goes untreated. And, you know, it starts to addle the mind and he starts making more and more rash decisions. So there are historians who suspect that the syphilis was becoming more advanced. Um, So that's what he's really notorious for. And then, of course, he well, you know, I got to I got to interject here, Rebecca. Uh, He did have 14 wives. So uh, he might. Let's let's yeah. just call a spade a spade. <laughs> Supposedly, yeah, he had maybe 14 wives. So I can understand the whole syphilis issue. Um, and I know he was trying to get mercury and they would like inject that in their genitals to yes. combat the actual symptoms. But it would only just make everything worse. Correct? Yes. Yeah. In the long run. But it took away symptoms. So they thought it was a cure, not realizing that the other illnesses they were getting was actually coming from the mercury. Wow. Oh yeah. Gosh. It's a brutal treatment. So, but Blackbeard, yeah, and Blackbeard. Now, I know when he was privateering and working for the people that were saying, "Go ahead, take the goods from these ships. You have our permission." And then when he went on his own, he'd already been doing that for about three to four years, and then he only did his own pirating for like only two years, right? That's correct. Yeah. Um, The average lifespan of a pirate was just two years. And the reason for this is because of various issues. They might die from illness, infection in battle, or they were captured. One of those two things. Or if they were lucky, they could retire and go home. That was a bit more rare, though. So he sails for only two years as a pirate, but he becomes one of the most notorious pirates of the age. And what's so interesting also is that compared to some other pirates, he actually wasn't even that successful. They didn't capture very many huge prizes. But I think what it was, it was the blockade of Charleston that really 
frightened people because of how successful he was in doing so. He took lots of hostages during the t- this time, um, and he blockaded the port for like a week, and that really damaged the port of Charleston, South Carolina, which was one of the largest ports in the Southern American colonies. Yeah, and not to mention, he looked really, like, horrific. He looked so scary when he'd come on these ships. I mean, he'd, I don't know how he didn't set himself on fire with the candles. (laughs) You know know what I mean? I know he put wax or something on his beard, but you would think that would catch fire, too. I don't know how he escaped that, but he must have looked like he was coming straight from hell. Yeah, it was. Yeah. And um, I honestly don't know how he managed to escape that either. It's just in kind of eyewitness accounts that he had candles in his hair and smoke would rise from him. But I had no idea also how he managed not to actually catch fire. Um, Sometimes I joke that maybe he was actually wearing a wig and had a whole bunch of them just in case. I mean, there's no evidence for that, but it's kind of something I joke about. You Um, know what? That makes sense. Now, I know that there are some pirates that we've all heard of that are not actual pirates. Like Long John Silvers, he's from Treasure Island. He never existed. Um, But I was kind of curious because, you know, we've all heard of Blackbeard. We have all heard of Captain Kidd. We've all heard of those. And I was actually, because I'm so novice at piracy at all i wasn't even sure if they were the true things but you say they were so um yes so that that's good now i have a question though let's talk about girl pirates (laughs) now i know that um let's see what were the girls they were uh ann bonnie and mary reed correct yes okay correct and wasn't one of them married to was it blackbeard that they were married to Uh, No, so Anne Bonny was married to the pirate Jack Rackham, who had actually sailed under Charles Vane for several years. And what's really interesting is Anne Bonny and Mary Reed, they sailed on the same ship um, with Jack Rackham, and they actually were only pirates, the three of them together, for about two and a half months, from late August until late October of 1720. So for such a short amount of time, they did become some of the most infamous pirates. But it's really because of Anne Bonny and Mary Reed, the idea of two women acting openly as pirates. Um, There were other women pirates. We just don't really know their stories, probably because they were disguised as men or just because they weren't seen as significant um, as members of the crew. And I, well, I do know that it was labeled like bad luck to even have a woman on a ship. And then when they would fight, they would fight open shirts you know, with their breasts showing. And I don't know if that was just a form of just shock value or if it was just, hey, we're brazen enough to do this. Don't even question us. I don't even know what that was about. But do you have an insight on that? Yeah, I think um, like, you know, we don't exactly know what their reasons are, but I think most likely it was really just to intimidate victims, just kind of shocking people because no one was going to expect two women fighting. I mean, these women, here's the thing. They're cursing louder. They're swearing harder. They're brandishing cutlasses and pistols. They're wearing men's clothes, which is also very deviant in general. They've got their long flowing hair. But yeah, fighting with their shirts open and their breasts exposed really would kind of just shock you know deer in the headlights for some of their victims because you know they're not expecting that so it was a very good tactic um and they were actually quite ruthless they captured a woman named dorothy thomas and jack rackham was like oh we can't keep a woman hostage we need to let her go and mary reed or either one and bonnie or mary reed i forget which one maybe both of them said no we need to keep her hostage or if you don't want to keep her hostage we need to kill her because she'll go back and she'll report us to the authorities and jack rackham said no um, so it's interesting that it was Anne Bonnie and Mary Reed that actually wanted to kill a victim, not Jack Rackham. But they ended up being correct. Dorothy Thomas was one of the main eyewitnesses who spoke out against them when they were arrested and put on trial in Jamaica. Oh, 
Oh, wow. Now, what was their fate? Were they just like, you know, the other pirates that were caught? Were they hung as well or decapitated? So what happened is the general punishment for a pirate or the the, uh, execution was a public hanging. Mm -hmm. And this was very standard. Um, So they were all found guilty. Jack Rackham was hung at a place called Gallows Point in Jamaica, which was later renamed as Rackham's Key. So a lot of pirates stay in it very notorious because of this. But Anne, Bonnie and Mary Reed's fate was different. Now, they were both found guilty. And most of the time, if a woman was found guilty and sentenced to hang, she wouldn't actually hang. They keep her in prison for a long time and then eventually just sort of let her go. But okay. they had a kind of a big twist. Both women revealed that they were pregnant. Mm-hmm. And it was true. They had an examination and it was true, which means they were pregnant while they were pirating, which is really, really intense in yeah. and of itself. And so they got what was called a stay of execution, which was common. If a woman was pregnant on the stand, they're like, OK, we're not going to actually carry out the sentence till after you have your child. So they're both in prison for this time. Now, Mary Reed dies in April of 1721. So it's possible she may have died from complications in childbirth, but it's been officially recorded. She died of what was called jail fever, and that was typhus, basically. And she's buried in St. Catherine's Parish, and her death was marked in the St. Catherine's Parish Registry. Mm. And Bonnie is quite different. We don't really know what happened to her. There are a few theories. One is the most long-standing accepted theory is that it's likely that her father may have managed to bail her out and take her home and she lived the rest of her life in North Carolina. But recently, about a little almost a year ago, I think back in January of 2021, a YouTuber whose name I can't remember, he actually did some deep dive research and found St. Catherine's Parish death records, which listed a woman named Anne Bonnie in 1731. Really? So that, yeah. yeah. So that suggests maybe she lived out the rest of her life in Jamaica, but doing what? We don't know. Right. So she's a mystery. Well, when it comes to how they died, I was actually very surprised because uh, I didn't know how Blackbeard died. And I was like blown away. And then how they carried out, you know, showing how he died and all that. So tell my listeners what happened with him. So Blackbeard and his crew faced a massive standoff off the coast of Virginia. And the standoff is against the Coast Guard, which is led by a young lieutenant named Lieutenant Maynard. And Lieutenant Maynard kind of leads the charge. He goes up onto the ship and engages Blackbeard in a sword fight. And he actually injures Blackbeard. And according to Lieutenant Maynard, he said he stabbed Blackbeard in the leg and Blackbeard yells, well done, lad. Uh, We don't know why. We don't know what it means. And then while Blackbeard is injured and distracted, Lieutenant Maynard uh, decapitates Blackbeard in one fell swoop with his sword. And then Blackbeard's head was put on the bowsprit of a ship and it was sailed up and down the American coast, not the entire coast, but up through the mid-Atlantic region. It is said that it's possible that his skull was encased in silver and used as a drinking vessel in taverns throughout Virginia, but we don't know if that's actually true. But yeah, his death was very unusual. Pirates were generally not beheaded as a death (laughs) sentence. So this is one of the reasons also why Blackbeard has been so notorious in history because of the spectacular death. That that'll send a message when you've got someone's head on a spike, kind of like what they did in King Henry VIII's time. <laughs> yeah, this sends an absolute message. You know, this is a warning to you pirates of what's going to happen. And many pirate, most pirates, what was standard is after they would hang, their body would be strung up in a gibbet, kind of like a metal cage for anywhere from three tides up to years. And what? the whole point was to <laughs> warn people against piracy. This will, you know, this will happen to you. Pirates be warned. 
Wow. Okay. Okay. That's craziness. Now, let me ask you something that's a little off topic for your actual time frame. But let me ask you about Somalian pirates nowadays. What is the difference between those? I know they're more terroristic, but so are these other pirates. What's your take on that? Um, so what I know about Somali pirates is that a lot of it is quite political. I believe the government has supported some of the piracy. And Somalia has struggled for a long time politically and economically. And these Somalian pirates are after generally large cargo ships that are sailing around the Horn of Africa. And they sail in these small skipper ships. They have weapons and they have, you know, advanced GPS technology to be able to track these cargo ships. They want goods. They want cash. But the thing is, cargo ships can't really carry weapons. So it kind of goes against maritime law to really carry a lot of weapons because you don't want to accidentally be seen as uh, aggression against another country's ship. So it's difficult. So as a result, cargo ships generally need to surrender for the safety if they're unable to get Somali pirates. And Somali pirates have also been after cruise ships. Um, And it's to bring money and goods back to the country. So pirates were of the golden age of piracy were a little bit different in that they weren't necessarily trying to help a specific country, but they were bringing goods back onto land to sell in sort of a black market. But the act of piracy, the way it was done, is very, very similar. Right. Um, lots of parallels, except it's just modern weaponry versus 18th century weaponry. Exactly. Now, let me ask you this. Back to the time period that you're more familiar with. What did they eat? I know that they uh, had to deal with scurvy and all those things. And I remember seeing uh, on one of your videos on TikTok about maybe some turtle uh-huh. soup or turtles or whatever. So tell me about that. Yeah, turtle meat was actually really popular, not just amongst pirates, but sailors. Um, turtles are really plentiful on the coast. And it was said that turtle flesh you know, cured a lot of issues. They felt it was an anti-scurvy type of food, that it would cure muscle aches, headaches, and even impotence. Mm. So, yeah, so turtles were really desired. They do have lots of vitamins and minerals in their bodies, so it maintains that, you know, it would be desirable to eat. But generally, pirates ate what most sailors ate, food that could last for a long time on ships. So this would be lots of dried legumes, dried meats, Mm -hmm. grains, dried fruits and vegetables. They're always trying to avoid scurvy. But pirates generally had a bit of a better diet than a lot of merchant and naval ships. And the reason for this is because of what they would plunder. They're able to replenish their stores a lot more. Um, So they're able to get more access to the fresher foods that they generally have to finish within the first couple weeks of their journey. So in a lot of ways, pirates were physically healthier and suffered less effects of issues like scurvy and malnutrition than many other merchants or naval sailors or general sailors would. Yeah. Lord knows they were getting a bunch of vitamin D. I'll tell you that. (laughs) They're loose. Yeah. yeah, With their loose clothing and and all the sun and everything. But I was going to ask you also, they loved Moderna wine. We do know that. And I always thought it was more of a rum thing, but it wasn't. It was more about the wine. And it was specifically, uh, what kind of wine? Was it the Spanish wine? Yeah. So it's called Madeira. And Madeira wine is a Portuguese dessert wine. And it was very expensive. I'm not really sure why. I'm not really sure of how the production was. Okay. I'm sure it required a lot of sugar to make being a dessert wine and all, but this was a wine that was heavily desired and it was quite expensive as well. So pirates could get a really good price for it. Uh, Pirates were after goods that they could sell for a lot of money. 
Right. In fact, back in the, you know, this is why a lot of people think pirates were after treasure and we think of treasure such as gold and silver and, mm. you know, jewels. Sure. If they found that huge bonus, but in the 17th and 18th centuries, the word treasure just simply meant valuable. Right. So they were after things like wines, like fancy wines um, that could sell for a large price, different types of textiles, spices, medicines, sugar. Sugar was really huge. Um, rum, they were after rum. And if there happened to be some enslaved cargo, they might count them as cargo or absorb them onto their ship for extra manpower. Mm, okay. Yeah. And that was another thing, too. Um, I love the fact that most of them, even though they were terrorizing other ships and, and taking other people's goods, they really didn't want to kill their men. They, they didn't want the people to die. And that was mostly because they wouldn't have anybody to help them, you know, sail their ships and do all the things because they were pretty organized from what you tell me. It was actually a very organized process when pirates would rob ships. And, you know, they would generally go on, they'd attack until the ship would surrender. And then, you know, the captains would deal with each other. And, you know, the captain would also say, look, here's the cargo I have. Here's what you can take. You know, let's all get out of here as quick as possible. And if pirates lost men, this is when they take crew hostage. Or if the other captain was really uncooperative, then that's when they would take hostages and try to force people into piracy. A lot of people were forced into it. And it was usually to replace crew members or if the captain wasn't of the other ship wasn't being cooperative. Right. And they would actually, the people that they would go and, and take over their ships, they would actually fly their own flags, like fly the flags of, of the ships they knew they were going to take over so that they would think they were friendly people, right? Right. So maritime law uh, requires that all ships must identify themselves when they start approaching other ships. And the way you do that is you fly the flag of your country. Right. Uh, pirates did develop their own flag. And in the 17th century, they generally flew a red flag, and this was known as the bloody flag. Um, and then around the turn of the 17th century, they start using a black flag. And these flags have two meanings. If a pirate was sailing a red flag, it meant they would offer no quarter, which meant they wouldn't offer mercy. They would fight to the death. Oh, wow. If they flew a black flag, it meant that the pirates were there and they would offer quarter and they'd negotiate as long as the ship surrendered. But then this black flag pretty much takes over in the 1800s and some pirates start designing a very specific pirate flag. Uh, Bartholomew Roberts designed one of the first flags um, or created one of the first designs for the pirate flag and it's a picture of a devil holding kind of a trident in one hand and a bloody heart in the other with an arrow going through a bloody heart nice. jack rackham is the one who invents the symbol using the skull and kind of crossed cutlasses and which would later was modified to a uh, skull and crossbones which is what became synonymous because gradually that was adopted as the pirate flag but um yeah so pirates what they would do is they would hail ships mm -hmm. Usually by flying a false flag, you know, maybe a British flag or maybe a flag signifying distress, which happened. And then when the ship got too close to a retreat, they would switch out the flag for a pirate flag. And then the other ship knew, oh God, here we go. And that's the thing. You're just like, oh, no. And what was the name of that flag? Uh, the, the black flag? Uh, the Jolly Roger. The Jolly Roger. I couldn't think of the name of it. Yes, yes, yes. Now, uh, somebody asked you on one of your podcasts, they were like, now, what is this Davy Jones thing? Because we've all heard about that on SpongeBob. We've all have kids. Yeah. Um, and tell me what that refers to, what you think it refers to. Well, Davy Jones is actually quite interesting because no one really knows um, <laughs> where it comes from it, or we don't know the origins of it. So it's believed that, and um, I actually did write about this a little bit in my book, um, it believes it may have come from some Dutch lore. Mm. But what Davy Jones' locker means is the bottom of the sea, being drowned. And wow. this became, this is all out of a longstanding maritime lore 
maritime mythology that just became very common terminology. I'm honestly not sure exactly the origins of the term Davy Jones locker, but that is what was known as where sailors would sink. And it kind of became synonymous with it. Like you'd see reports of, you know, pirates saying, you know, you won't cast us into Davy Jones locker or we will cast you into Davy Jones's locker. Um, Yeah. So it became very synonymous and it became a famous phrase. You know, these things just sort of get picked up and you know make their way into popular culture so yeah like everyone knows about davy jones's locker but here's the thing even maritime historians um a lot of us don't actually know the origins a lot of these maritime terms and maritime origins um and mythologies we're not sure where they come from they just kind of build over time right and let me ask you this when you hear about all these stories uh, and you tell us all these stories that you know because you're so good at this and i'm just enamored and i'm just at awe trying to take it all in were they reading like journals from people? You know how people take journals and this is what happened on the ship today and this is what happened, you know, yesterday and, and you know, that kind of thing. Is that where we get some of this information or is it just hearsay? Well, how do you know what is real and what isn't? The vast majority of sources we have from pirates don't really come from pirates themselves. That's the thing. Pirates either did not keep records or they destroyed records, or the authorities destroyed their records. So where we get the information comes from trial transcripts, Mm. because when pirates put on trial. um, Yeah, and we get lots of reports from newspapers about pirates. We get, which is where loads of information comes from, lots of letters that are written between governors and those you know, members in parliament or large plantation owners. And these are all recorded in what's called the calendar of state papers, which you can access online, British history online, free to access, which is great, especially during a pandemic. And (laughs) yeah, yeah, you know, trial reports, um, pirates, when they were executed as part of tradition would give what was called a last dying speech. And this was very theatrical, all part of the theater of a public execution. This is where what a pirate had to do is they had to atone for their crimes, like kind of list what they were, or they had to say what their crimes were, atone for their crimes, and then, you know, warn people not to follow their footsteps. So this is where we get lots of documents from them. A lot of testimony comes from survivors of pirate ships, those who had were held hostage Mm -hmm. uh, and kind of gave reports of what happened to them, especially when they're trying to prove that, no, I was forced into this. I'm not a pirate. And so that was really, really huge. And, you know, pirates just trying to prove their innocence. Like, no, I tried to take a pardon. Or, no, we did this. Or, no, I didn't want to do this. This is how that pirate acted. This is how this pirate captain acted. And then another big source we have is a large book called The General History of the Pirates by a man. Yeah, it's by a man named Captain Charles Johnson. And it was published in 1724. So at the height of the most infamous period of the Golden Age of Piracy, it's a collection of pirate biographies of all the most infamous pirates of the age. Now, it's an interesting source because some of it is quite factual, but a lot of uh, holes are filled in with fiction. And this is to give it kind of a novel aspect and to make it a bestseller. And it worked. So it's a complicated source, though, because, you know, with certain pirates like Anne Bonny and Mary Reed, whose early lives we know nothing of, it's written about in the general history of the pirate, but it's probably fiction. We don't have any other information. Right. Yeah. So, but yeah. this became a really famous source. It's never gone out of print. You know, you can go and buy a copy on Amazon or IndieBound or something like that. Right. And I got to tell my listeners, guys, 
Dr. Rebecca Simon has also been on the Netflix docuseries on pirates. Um, she's also been on the History Channel. This is the caliber of person I'm talking to right now. And that's why I'm just like blown away that she was so nice to come and talk to me because I'm, I'm a little flustered and I'm not ever flustered on my interviews. And I'm just so blown away that she wanted to talk to me and, and tell my listeners and me more information on, on her expertise because this is so fascinating to me. And I could probably talk to you for another hour, but I know you have things you have to do. So I want you to tell my listeners about your books, about anything else that you'd like to talk about, your social media, your websites, anything that you'd like to tell my listeners. Sure. Well, thank you so much for one. That's so kind. All of that's so kind of you to say, and I'm always happy to come on the podcast. I love like, you know, giving history to people. And so thank you so much. So, good at it. <laughs> um, so my book is called Why We Love Pirates, The Hunt for Captain Kidd and How He Changed Piracy Forever. And it was published last November, November of 2020. And a lot of it is based off my doctorate, where I looked a lot at the pirate Captain Kidd. And I kind of use him as a framing device to show how perceptions of piracy changed. And also it tries to dispel a lot of myths about pirates that we think of the idea that, you know, they weren't just swashbucklers. They were also other kinds of characters. Some were just regular people. Some were quite violent. So um, it was a labor of love and yeah, it's available on Amazon. It's available paperback, ebook, um, audiobook, and you can buy it anywhere, any stores and Amazon indie bound, et cetera. My second book is coming out sometime in 2022. It's going to be called pirate Queens, the lives of Anne Bonnie and Mary Reed. It's a full length biography. I believe I'm honestly writing the first full nonfiction biography about them, but it also goes into detail about what the social context was for women and what life would be like for women on pirate ships. So on social media, uh, you can find me in a few places. I have a website. It's Rebecca dash pirate.com. You can find me on Twitter which my username is Becca Lex. I'll spell it for you. B-E-C-K-A-L-E-X, okay. which is kind of my first and middle name combined. And you can find me on TikTok where I deliver daily pirate facts. And my username for that is Pirate Becca Lex. So the word pirate and Becca Lex, again, that's B-E-C-K-A-L-E-X, all one word. So those are the areas where I'm most active on social media and Like you said, um, you can find me on Netflix's The Lost Pirate Kingdom. I was one of the historians interviewed. I'm in a few episodes. You can find me in a couple episodes of History Channel's Oak Island and Beyond Oak Island and a BBC documentary called Britain's Outlaws and then many podcasts, which are all listed on my website. Yes, they are, because I've been listening to all of them. And you have been fantastic. I have learned so much. And I love the history. And you're so articulate and so uh, such a great personality. And it makes it so much more fun to listen to somebody that's got personality and a sense of humor. So um, you have been fantastic, Rebecca. Thank you so much for joining me today. It has been such an honor to have you on my show. Well, thank you so much. And it's been my absolute pleasure being here. Thank you so much. Well, I love providing because I want to know at no cost. So if you like what you heard, please leave me a five-star review or you can just buy me a cup of coffee. It's kind of like a Patreon, but you don't have a monthly subscription and you can give whatever you feel led to give. I am a one-woman show and I do all of my scheduling and my interviewing and my editing. So just know your support is so greatly appreciated. And one more thing, I am a paranormal romance novelist and you can find all of my books on Amazon. Just look up my name. I'm very easy to find. Thank you guys again and I will see you next week.